On December 6, 2021, the U.S. District Court in Georgia issued a nationwide 50-state injunction against the enforcement of the vaccine mandate imposed on federal contractors. But is this in reality a win for the freedom-minded anti-mandate movement? Or is this extreme overreach just a negotiating tactic meant to make the public more accepting of seemingly scaled-back requirements that may prove just as imposing, though more palatable, to the courts and a worn-down population? It's time to talk about mandates. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. Welcome back, theoryologists. All right, for those of you that are surprised to see an episode of this show downloaded to your podcast player after such a long hiatus, well, 2021 was certainly a year to be reckoned with for many of us, myself included. And I, I'll cover that in a future episode explaining the need to pause production. If you are just discovering the show because this episode title caught your eye, well, welcome. There is a back catalog for you to explore. And as you will quickly realize, this show takes a different approach to exploring the wonderful range of topics that interest us. Soon you will be calling yourself a theoriologist as well, approaching the conspiratorial, the paranormal, supernatural, and mysterious in a new perspective. With that said, let's get to our discussion on mandates. First thing to cover with this is the history. And this particular story and discussion of mandates is going to start with the September 9th, 2021 speech by President Joe Biden addressing the public and effectively identifying this as a pandemic of the unvaccinated. <laughs> That's right. Those of y'all that are trying to figure out kind of where this is going, this is where it all begins. That speech in September, in which he outlined a, a forward direction for all of this that would later come about, the mandates that would surface, um, the litigation, the injunctions, and in some cases, subsequent court decisions, all about this. Now, we're not going to get into a long discussion about the speech. I've included it in the show notes, a link so you could watch the entire 30-minute discussion. In it, he outlines the issues that are found, the, the current statistics for the COVID pandemic as they were known in the narrative then, and the, uh, you know, the subsequent uh, problem status, the remaining level of the population that uh, of the, the public that were unvaccinated or not fully vaccinated, clearly too slow on the uptake to, uh, to properly address this problem, putting everybody at risk as it goes. This led to several things. This led to, one, the issuance of Executive Order 14042. That's right, 14042. That executive order um, outlined as the, by the authority vested in me as president of the, uh, by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America, 
including the Federal Property and Administrative Services Act, so on and so forth, uh, to promote economy and efficiency in procurement by contracting with sources to provide adequate COVID-19 safeguards for their workforce. It is hereby ordered as follows. <laughs> At this point, various sections allocating requirements for vaccination through various avenues for about 100 million Americans. Now, for those of y'all outside the U.S., yes, this discussion is specifically focusing on the mandate battle that has been occurring here in the U.S. And I know that many of y'all in the U.K., in Australia, in Canada, my heart goes out to you. You've been battling things that make the U.S. look as though they've done nothing. And I want you to know that I'm conscious of that and we're specifically addressing one aspect here because it's um, perhaps a, an array of hope. At the time of this recording, uh, a lot of the news is breaking that the several restrictions in the UK are being dropped uh, and restrictions in Canada are being dropped, uh, perhaps, uh, or and in Australia as well. And so that leads to some hope, some optimism. At the same time, it seems as though the timing for all of this is, I don't know, perhaps too convenient. And I think this discussion may play into some of that as well. Uh, as usual, we will talk about, we will continue to talk about the history. We're going to move into some of the court response. That, it, that revolved around this. And of course, eventually we're going to move into our theoriology. For those of y'all that aren't familiar with that, of course, that's our aspect of the discussion where we will explore another side of this and perhaps find a hidden meaning to the narrative uh, or perhaps a different aspect to the discussion that makes us think about it in a different way. To continue with the history, after the executive order was issued, uh, the, there was the establishment of the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force. Now, the Workforce Task Force uh, is, <laughs> is just that. It was established. There's a website for it. Uh, and it, um, it, it kicks off with this. Um, and, and specifically, we'll look at this aspect for the federal contractors although it applies to both federal workers and federal contractors. It says on September 9th, President Biden signed Executive Order 14042, um, ensuring adequate COVID safety protocols for federal contractors. Continues on, which directs executive departments and agencies to ensure that contracts and contract-like instruments covered by the order include a clause requiring the contractor and their subcontractors at any tier Two, for the foundation of the contract, comply with all guidance for uh, contractor or subcontractor workplace locations published by the task force. Now, specifically, this goes on and addresses it in a full guideline as well as a FAR update. The FAR is the Federal Acquisition Regulations, and this is how 
most government contracts and operations. Uh, these are effectively the the guidelines used to operate those with with consistency um, and uh, uniformity and performance. So after the uh, establishment of the workforce, there was also the development of an OSHA regulation. Now the OSHA, of course, is is uh, the uh, Occupational Safety and Health uh, Agency, and those requirements are followed by. Oh gosh, upwards of 80 million Americans that work for contractors that fall under OSHA guidelines and regulation. Uh, anybody that's in construction, anybody that has worksite safety um, or perhaps hazardous uh, environments, even in some cases, some office situations fall under OSHA guidance and regulation. Finally, there was also a health worker mandate that was included with all of this. Now, the reason those three areas are important is those were three different areas of attack with this executive order and the mandates, kind of a multi-pronged approach. The first being through federal contracting mechanisms, the second through uh safety guidelines and regulations on the worksite for private companies in commercial work. And then the third, a uh, health worker guideline uh, that would apply obviously to uh, medical facilities, health facilities, hospitals, and the like. All of these guidelines had specific, had different uh, implementation plans and timelines, most of which stretched into the beginnings of this year. One of the reasons that this episode is coming out when it is, is I wanted to, as while watching this play out a bit, give it some time to play out and hear the kind of the full story. Um, in the case of the federal contracts, uh, they was to be implemented uh, in the contracts by October of 2021 with full implementation by uh, December and later moved to January. The OSHA regulations, they were, uh, the initial guidance was issued. Uh, companies would begin implementing uh, as they saw fit. Final guidance uh, was outlined and introduced in, in OSHA, I believe by um, November. And the health, health worker mandate also uh, applied by the end of the year and eventually pushed into January. Now, very quickly, there was uh, a response to this. Uh, in some cases, full uh, adoption by organizations, entities, companies, uh, hospitals, businesses, uh, for fear of being shut down, for fear of fines and penalties, um, or generally just being able to to work and receive future contracts or the concern for loss of funding. Uh, basically, with these various uh, organizations or through these avenues, there could be steep economic penalties uh, associated with violating in any of these areas. For individuals, of course, it meant um, loss of job or you know, 
potentially uh, loss of of opportunity or or advancement uh, in in certain environments. Now, all of these requirements did allow for exemptions of varying levels. The execution of the exemptions, as well as the uh, details behind the exemption requirements, were left to the individual organizations. Uh, That included, obviously, federal agencies that had uh, exemption requirements. That's a whole different discussion. We're not going to dive into the the aspect of the the exemption organization that was its own <laughs> kerfuffle uh, but but these mandates came down and of course pretty uh, pretty promptly and swiftly were executed uh, the response was in many cases visceral uh, it was often really identified by state you could tell uh, which states were going to um, embrace and implement this, which states and public populations were going to have problems with it based on uh, kind of the previous response to the voluntary vaccination update anyway in those areas. Uh, Ultimately, what happened is uh, there were various state-level litigations implemented in federal courts at at the state levels of whether it was in in the case of the in the case of any of them actually health worker OSHA and the federal mandate um, states like Texas uh, and the attorney general implemented a uh, filed a, a a request for injunction and a lawsuit there in other cases there was a collection of I believe it was nine states that that gathered together and implemented in a centralized federal court, um, and and so all of these were slowly brought out. Uh, all the while, companies figuring out how to implement this mandate and contracts for the federal contractors being adjusted. Um, eventually, rulings started to be issued. And of course, I'm not going through the. I'm not going to bore you with the specifics on the timelines of that. We'll have a lot of that lined out in the in the show notes. But for the sake of of not worrying about a specific timeline, uh, eventually some of the uh, rulings included federal court injunctions uh, that, uh, based on, for uh, example, the there was an injunction on the. Um, federal contractor mandate first, actually for a single state. And then uh, finally, it was a a full 50 state injunction. Uh, Eventually, there was an injunction against implementation of the OSHA regulation uh, out of concern of the economic impact on that. Uh, And then the health worker... um, mandate well that was various lawsuits and that one had some more challenge in injunctions uh obviously the argument for medical facilities was was harder to argue that the need um now following the injunctions that at least paused hard implementation uh, on much of this but eventually led to supreme court rulings 
most recently, Supreme Court ruling against, and 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 maybe maybe that's the kicker here, is there was against the OSHA regulation, there was a Supreme Court ruling against it, uh, and really not by much. It was a six-three decision, and it was uh, you know strongly worded or leaning towards concerns of the economic impact as well as concerns that that OSHA uh, regulating a effectively a medical procedure fell outside the realm of the intent of OSHA regulations. The health worker mandate, on the other hand, received an, a, a ruling by the Supreme Court upholding that. And again, that was more out of safety and concern rather than a discussion of whether or not this is something that could be done by uh, by an administration. So what's remaining, and therefore what we'll talk about you know, a, a bit more in this aspect, is the federal contractor mandate. You see, that's still pending a Supreme Court ruling. Um, in fact, as of today, as I'm recording this, news came out um, of Texas, a, a Texas federal court issuing a 50-state injunction against the mandate uh, for federal workers. So this is all tied together of federal workers and the federal contractor mandate uh, because it's all guided by the Safer Federal Workforce task force. And you'll hear me saying that over again, um, as much as it rolls off the tongue, but we have a workforce task force, but it's for a safer workforce as opposed to some other kind of workforce. Um, you'll see quickly that as usual, once a bureaucracy is, is established, uh, by a government, it's hard to get rid of. And I think that will be the case. Now, with mandates such as this and, and a uh, federal contractor scenario, it's often something that is it's something unfamiliar to much of the general public. And that is that when uh, a company has a contract to perform work for the federal government, uh, in addition to a lot of additional requirements uh, that are, are there for you know, performing the work um, that you might expect, you know, that amount to certain types of reporting requirements and, uh, I guess, levels of of operation or information security uh, and all of those aspects that, that it makes sense, a contractor where they're working on-site at a federal facility or off-site in, in you know, in their own facilities, uh, there are actually a lot of of guidelines um, and requirements that for federal workers, federal agencies that then extend over into the contractor and the contractor requirements. It's kind of a specialized field. Companies that get into federal contracting um, often stay in that realm because of the additional levels of requirements and overhead uh, and reporting and things of that nature. It just makes good sense that if you're going to develop your your team infrastructure and, and operation 
uh, to accommodate uh, federal work that you'd look for more work that utilizes that that workforce and infrastructure so that you're not doing things different ways um, over you know all over the place and so it does carry over into into commercial work private work that uh, like that but these contractors be effectively become known as federal contractors uh, because of because of that it's it's a it's a niche just like every you know every other specific type of industry and um, uh, much of those guidelines are implemented through something called the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation. And there are hundreds and hundreds of these guidelines that are used to ensure, it, the intent is to ensure that the contracting for these um, reduce fraud, reduce waste, uh, that they're meant to protect you know the contractors that were meant to protect the government agencies. Uh, they're they're meant to make sure that there's just good business being performed uh, in in a lot of cases, right? So whether it's financial tracking or uh, operation and performance tracking, even good business like hiring practices um, and and things of that. You know, you we've all heard those stories that come about. Uh, that of of companies that do end up trying to commit fraud, funnel money, uh, you know, get paid on contracts without doing any work, or get work because of who they know and and some sort of other corrupt you know, corruptive uh, aspect in 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 government in government. So that this is meant to protect. So I, I don't want to uh, condemn the the far or condemn. Uh, federal contracting uh, as a whole, but this was implemented with new guidelines, effectively uh, creating a, a FAR clause and um, referring to all of the guidelines defined by this safer federal workforce task force. All of that was then implemented into contracts uh, with these with these contractors, with these companies that now they're in their contract, all of these requirements are in place, and that included verification of vaccination, uh, exemption uh, policies, uh, and and tracking and and you know monitoring of of all of these requirements. Uh, so you know it was specifically layered and arduous. Um, it's also you know difficult to argue against that. If you're going to hire someone to do work and you have specific requirements for them, you know, sensibly, uh, if you, if, if the contractor does not want to follow what you might consider important or safe guidelines uh, for operation or fair um, tracking for, for their costs and, and all of that stuff, well, then um, you don't have to hire them or they don't have to do business for you and they can go elsewhere. That's the idea, um, which is why, though there has been an injunction, this is going to be difficult to to weigh. Um, but you'd think after the injunction that that most of these companies would simply drop it now. And uh, very specifically, we can look here that it, it it's even on the on the site for safer uh, the safer federal workforce. 
Uh, site. It says regarding applicable court orders and injunctions, the Office of Management and Budget has issued guidance on implementing requirements of Executive uh, 14042 while ensuring compliance with applicable court orders and injunctions, including those that are preliminary and may be supplemented, modified, or vacated depending on the course of ongoing litigation. Effectively saying that all of the requirements that are now in place in these contracts are paused and uh, no action will be taken to enforce the clauses um, until all of the pending litigation is settled or the injunction is lifted. So you'd think, hey, most companies would walk away. Um, but no, uh, what's actually happened is, is uh, while some contractors are fleeing from them, other companies are choosing to embrace it. While they may have been waiting for uh, federal direction and guidance, whether through the OSHA mandates or through the uh, federal uh, requirements, uh, some were just, some wanted to implement these policies for various reasons um, and are choosing to do so now that they can't lean on, hey, a federal government guideline, which means that whether they wanted to or not, they have to, you know, hey, so sorry. But now they don't have to. They're doing it anyway. Um, and uh, I'll have links to some of those examples in the show notes. But, you know, other companies are, are finding different ways to do it, I suppose, is, is uh, the approach. But, you know, this that's that's a brief history. and and. Understandably, I did not dive into the weeds uh, to give you all of those details. Um, I'd rather, based on your interest, allow you to to dive in on it um, in it on its own. Um, none of this is hidden from the public. The workforce is there. Uh, the the federal workforce task force guidelines are there, uh, as well as the OSHA mandates. Also on the federal register. Those are, are published regularly, but if you really wanted to go through them, you've already surfed these random websites and, and gone and see them. Uh, this is just an opportunity for us to cover a bit about those man mandates and understand the extreme nature of them, right? These mandates were are, are enforcing a specific sentiment, one that was expressed in the president's speech, right? Primarily that this was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Uh, and, and because of that, the problem, <laughs> the witch hunt starts there. We've talked about that in the past in previous episodes that I've referred to quite a bit. Certainly go back and look at the, or listen to the um, masking episodes that talk about uh, the uh, social control theory and the creation of of the folk devil, uh, how the, how that was certainly we talked about it back then in the summer of 2020. How this was most certainly just a setup to create um, an other class, and that that would transition uh, of the anti-maskers into the unvaccinated when that came about, but. The real key with the mandates, I think, the discussion is 
is about why, if there was question, if there was concern, or if people knew, and certainly people knew, that there would be litigation, that there would be a recoiling against these, uh, or dissent uh, at the very least, and that the courts would, in many cases, have no option but to rule against uh, these mandates as levels of overreach. Um, why would you implement those in the first place? And a lot of people have focused on that argument that these are overreach, that they're out of the realm of capability and responsibility uh, uh, or authority uh, awarded to an administration or to the government, to the federal government in general. And uh, there's a lot of discussion to that. But I think that's missing the boat or at least missing an aspect of it, because that certainly is something that uh, those developing um, these, the mandates themselves, you know, and, and to be issued are certainly aware of that possibility. So I think it leads to uh, a very specific area. And this is where we'll get into theoriology. I want to introduce a term that once I describe it, you'll realize that you're completely familiar with it. And this is just common. It's something called reciprocal concessions. See, research has found that when, when someone makes a concession for us by, say, reducing the size of an original request or demand, that we, this recipient of the concession, see it as a, a favor and we actually feel a psychological obligation to change our position to try and agree to their revised offer. And when we agree to that revised offer, guess what? Our minds perceive it as a victory, right? Well, it's a win-win. We influence the opponent to take less money or to require less time or something to that effect. This is this feeling that we have, that we influenced the other guy into conceding, also results in us feeling more responsible for the final outcome of the negotiation. And that's what this is, a negotiation tactic. Studies have shown that not only do people respond by meeting the desired demand after a reciprocal concession, <laughs> but they're more positive to further requests down the line, right? They've met the other party in the middle. They've worked out an agreement that the other party feels like they won and the recipient feels like they won. And so therefore, it's good sense to do more business. I mean, the next time you walk into a situation where you're going to be asking someone for something, you know, you should always have a smaller backup request which you develop as, as a concession. Um, but there, there are those things that you need to keep in mind when you do that. Don't, don't make your initial request so ridiculous that it's seen as a joke uh, because the reduced follow-up request, it's not going to be taken seriously. And also the second request must be perceived as being significantly smaller than the initial request. And I guess finally, the 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 last or the two requests, they have to be related so so that they give this perception of of concession 
right? It's, it's, we deal with this anytime someone's gone to buy a car, right? How many times have you gone in to buy a car? And uh, if you're listening and you sell cars, you know, you've done this, right? Where the person asks, how much is it? And you give them the number or point to the, the sticker value on the, on the windshield. And when the person says, well, if that's the best you can do, I, I can't, I can't afford that. That's, that's out of my budget. And they say, well, let me go back and, and talk to um, a manager. And they disappear for a little bit. And you have time to mull around the car and think through, gosh, what, you know, what, uh, what would I take? Is it worth it? Gosh, I really like this car. It's my, you know, favorite color of candy apple red that I've always wanted. I can, I can relive my, my teenage years, whatever the case may be. About that point, the sales guy, after a, an appropriately uncomfortably long amount of time, returns and says, Hey, I've got a deal for you. I can drop the price a little bit, but the managers also said that we can throw in this and that perk. And uh, we have a really good financing deal that we can do for you because we just got word of it today. And unless you know very specifically how much that car should be worth and sell, all of a sudden you start thinking, well, gosh, they made a concession. They've done me a favor and I rejected the first offer and they've come back with something comparable. It's still for this car. It's you know, still a financial exchange, but there's some additional stuff here. And you feel more agreeable to that second offer, whether you should or not. We've all done it. Sad to say I'm shaking my head as I record knowing that I've done it. But that's how this works. That's reciprocal concessions. Parents of you've negotiated with your kids to get certain chores done or homework done You've probably had the exact same type of negotiating uh, experience uh, in some form or fashion. And, uh, you know, (laughs) hopefully everybody feels like they won in that. Well, that's a really interesting aspect. And and we don't have to dive into it too much because you know you're familiar with it, right? Reciprocal concessions as a a, a topic of, of psychological behavior is not a foreign concept now that we're introduced to it with just a simple definition. We know what that means. We know what it is. And okay, that makes perfect sense. But why? How does this apply to to these mandates that are going to be shot down by the courts? Well, remember, while there's injunctions in place, or even in the case of, of OSHA, the court rulings against it, these things are already, these regulations are already written and in place for the federal contractors. Their contracts have been rewritten. It's there and just waiting on a decision. And if you'll remember the line from uh, the, uh, the, the task force guidance, it says that those, um, that They'll be ensuring compliance with applicable court orders and injunctions, including those that are preliminary and eventually may be supplemented, modified, or vacated. Modified. That's the key. I think the answer here and the approach that is going to be taken 
is that we're experiencing a very well-planned reciprocal concessions negotiating tactic. The mandates are extreme. The mandates are uh, higher than something that uh, perhaps is even expected to be accepted by the public. These are full-on vaccine mandates, right? Entire workforces must be vaccinated or must meet very limited and very stringent exemption requirements. This goes well beyond, in many aspects, any authority that the federal government has, even if the public or the organizations are willing to implement them and adopt them. But what will happen once this plays out? Are they just going to leave it behind? Are they just going to drop it and say, oh, well, we tried? I don't think so. Remember, bureaucracies don't die. This task force is not going to simply be disbanded and dissolved. These contract modifications, you know, contract changes and clauses and all of the legalese that's now written into them is not just going to be erased and removed. They're in there. They want them to stay in there. I think the mandates are going to see a rewrite. And all they have to do is eliminate the vaccine requirement. Everything else can stay. See, these, these requirements uh, demand that the workforce are fully vaccinated. But there's other requirements too, right? That, that, the, that there be an exemption process that's, that's managed and controlled by the organization itself. They can determine what their limits of exemption are uh, within some general guidance and suggestions provided by the task force. But there's also a masking and social distancing mandate that comes into play. And of course, it, it's a masking mandate with elevated levels of transmission in specific areas, social distancing in, in meetings and in office areas and common areas. And of course, a masking requirement for those people that received a vaccine exemption. But if you eliminate the vaccine requirement, you can still keep a, a mask mandate because certainly that's just a, a you know, a, a piece of safety equipment, uh, no less than requiring hard hats on a construction site or other levels of, of safety gear, even in an office environment. And you can require the social distancing. You can also still allow organizations to manage exemptions. Um, and in fact, if there's a full masking requirement in uh, federal contractor workplaces, perhaps an exemption for masking can be allowed. And that exemption could include things such as uh, proof of vaccination that would allow you to no longer be masked uh, in the office. <laughs> and all you have to do is provide that verification to whomever in your organization is doing that, provided it's following all of the em employee record privacy, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, security uh, measures that are also in place to protect, to protect uh, personal information for employees. Uh, and so what ends up happening is the outcome remains the same with these mandates. The mandate can be revised to meet the requirements. Remember very specifically, the courts are determining simply that 
demanding and requiring vaccination is beyond the scope of the administration. It's not saying that that these various mandates and these regulations through these avenues of control are not out of the realm or that the court's not uh the court doesn't disagree with with the use of those simply the specific aspect of vaccines if you remove then the vaccine requirement revise the guidance for the federal workforce task force guidelines you can be, result in the exact same outcome of incentivizing vaccination with the employees um, as well as uh, I don't know what's the word um, perhaps identifying those employees that don't choose it and disincentivizing I guess would be the situation you know in either case you can request exemption in either case you could refuse vaccination in one it's more extreme you simply couldn't work there if you just simply chose to not participate at all. In the other aspect, well, I guess you're just stuck with a mask for the rest of your, you know, your your time in in employed, the rest of your employment. Um, either way, there's certainly a, a consequence of not getting vaccinated or sharing your vaccination status with your employer. This will I mean, it just encourages companies and organizations, municipalities, states to lead the mandate effort as opposed to it being from the federal government. It's a concession. And at that point, then, it sounds like an agreeable concession, right? That we're going to go through all of that. We feel that we have influenced the other guy into conceding, right, by litigating these mandates. And it results in us feeling more responsible for the outcome, right? We got the courts to make a decision. We contributed to that guidance and to the negotiation. And so we respond with that reciprocal concession. We're more positive to the future request. I think the public will adopt the mandate and feel as though they dodged a bullet. There's going to be a fearful public that's now convinced of the belief that the courts promote political position over public safety, and they'll lead the effort to punish and ostracize the unvaccinated, and they're going to do so in creative ways. As an example, this from a a CNBC article, I believe it was, um, that the grocery chain Kroger is going to take away paid COVID benefits and add insurance surcharges for unvaccinated employees. Well, we've seen things like that before, right? The the um, uh, tobacco-free employee versus a tobacco user. Right? Tobacco users pay a surcharge because they cost more. That's going to be the argument here, and I'm sure it will be upheld because the unvaccinated uh, are a greater risk to to medical costs and insurance costs, and therefore they're going to be upcharged. They're also going to take away paid COVID benefits for those that are unvaccinated. And those are, you know, that's just one example um, that creative efforts are going to be made. They're going to, by, by the federal government doing this, they have caused action. 
in organizations that had been waiting to simply, I suppose, take the path of least resistance. Just wait for the federal government to take action. And then they can, any responses, any criticisms, dissent within their employees can simply be dismissed away by saying that, sorry, we're just following federal guidelines. We're just following OSHA requirements. Now they can't. And we've pushed the courts to respond to this. Now, of course, the court could uphold the mandate for federal contractors, in which case this negotiation tactic doesn't even matter. But I think the courts will probably rule in some sort of hybrid. I think that they'll take to modify and strike certain aspects, in which case the result will um, will be the same. Um, and again, this exhibits aspects of that social control theory that it establishes the, the folk devil mantle onto the unvaccinated. However, these companies and organizations choose to do that, to create the optics that they think uh, the, the public needs to see. Now, if you think that the, why is this even a debate? If you're listening to this and you're thinking the public doesn't want this, why do we, why are we even negotiating? Well, there's a recent Rasmussen uh, poll that indicates that uh, upwards of between 25 to 30 percent of the U.S. population is agreeable, either highly agreeable or somewhat agreeable, to a mandate of of vaccine uh, implementation. And so, in in many regards, I mean, geez, there's a quarter of them that agree that children should be removed from parents who are quote unquote anti-vaxxers. So there is a vocal segment of the population that is already firmly down this road of authoritarian implementation, whatever their motivations are. Fear, genuine health concern for the public, um, or just simply that they have been caught up in this cycle and see witches everywhere. Those same people that wouldn't wear masks two years ago or are now refusing the vaccine. Now, I think we've gotten through that, and I think you can see where that's going. But there is, on the outside, a, another approach, an aspect of it. See, something else that, that President Biden talked about in his speech in September uh, that was overlooked to a degree was testing. See, there's, an, there's another route that it seems they could take if they need to completely abandon the mandate approach, right? If, if the public is just becomes too recoiled to these mandates, you know, these edicts um, and these royal decrees uh, coming from the federal government, if that just gets too dicey, and I bring this up because it is an election year here in 2022, on the outside, I'm calling it the punt, right? I think they could kick the ball and abandon the mandate language altogether, in which case they're going to pivot towards just keeping the fear elevated. See, testing is an important tool to help mitigate the spread of COVID-19. And 
public health experts and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommend that Americans use at-home tests if they begin to have symptoms at least five days after coming into close contact with someone who has COVID or are gathering indoors with a group of people who are at risk of severe disease. To help ensure Americans have tests on hand if a need arises, the Biden administration is purchasing one billion at-home rapid COVID-19 tests to give to Americans for free. A half billion tests will be available for order as of this month in January and will be mailed directly to American households. See, this is a recent statement issued, a segment from the recent station issued on January 14th out of the White House. Testing is a whole other as, uh, area of discussion, and we're going to do that in another episode because there's a reason why <laughs> all of the sudden these tests are coming out of the woodwork, why they want tests in the hands of everybody. If they have to drop the mandate requirement altogether, then you simply drive the fear so high uh, and keep it on everybody's mind, readily available with tests on hand that they're taking. And there's some good stories. Again, we'll dive into that in a future episode. As I was working on this one, I started coming across that. The news started being issued. We see that with companies happening. I know with my employer, they're distributing uh, tests, making them available. Uh, and all of a the sudden, these tests that were impossibly hard to find, tests that you couldn't find at your pharmacy, um, and then, uh, you know, requests being made that people not not uh, go out there and push for tests because we have to focus on uh, frontline workers and medical workers or people that actually need them. All of a sudden, these tests are absolutely just coming out in droves. They're, they're unlimited. We're going to send out millions and millions of them to everyone to have on hand at all times. Maybe you could replace the, the family game night with the family test night. It'll be great. We can all weekly get together and sit down and take our COVID test and make sure that we're all still, um, you know, part of the the, the great washed. We, we haven't fallen into the unclean, but we'll get into that more. And I do think that that's just an outside approach. Perhaps that, that backup, maybe a backup to the backup that we talked about with reciprocal concessions, right? That you have to have a smaller backup request that you can craft as a concession. That way, if the initial approach for these negotiations, if the courts just come down hard on this, uh, they can abandon it completely and have an offer that is still related, but just sounds so much better, right? Isn't seen as something ridiculous. And everything's been building up to this over time. I guess to conclude this, we should look at it again. There's this history, right? A timeline of this occurring. It's being rolled out very strategically. Starts with Pretty, you know, pretty commonly, it starts with a speech, a, 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 an announcement, a formal announcement by the president, followed by a very specific, uh, specifically worded executive order, leading to the development of regulations, guidelines, and implemented through very specific existing structures within the federal government to try to apply to multiple areas, industries, workforces um, that 
would be affected, right? And to cover all of your bases. After that, there was no question that litigation was going to come, that various states would have various responses, and that ultimately there would be court rulings and appeals that would end up at the Supreme Court and a final decision be made. Throughout that whole process, people have had time, just like you had time to walk around that car while the salesperson was gone, to think about what you're willing to accept and and how much you do or don't want that vehicle and what what your concessions, acceptable concessions, really would be to make it worth it. So now all of the companies have had time to determine what their workforces are willing to do, how they're able to implement as much as possible without having to let go or have uh, mass walk-offs um, and to, to you know, reduce the economic impact while at the same time adopting regulations in varying degrees. How can you implement, punish the dissenters, um, reward the adopters, uh, the compliant, and, um, and still be able to perform work as usual in this flailing economy? I think when you think about it like that and the concept of reciprocal concession, we see how, the, how this can, can feel like a conspiracy. And maybe that's what it is right? Um, it is a conspiracy, not a grand one, perhaps not a long stretch or a long standing one, but very simply the right people getting together and thinking through how this was going to play out. And so therefore presenting an idea that is not in line with the final outcome that they want, um, or that they truly want to see play out, but rather positioning so that it looks like the other side is getting what they want at the end of the day. Um, so remember that as you see these things play out, as you see this in the news, think of that concept of reciprocal concession. See if you are in a negotiation that you didn't even realize was occurring and maybe pause and think, am I agreeing to it just because I feel I should? Or are these concessions that I really want? And make sure that that request isn't so ridiculous that that you shouldn't accept it. Um, if you're an employer, if you have a company that falls under it, uh, think about how think about how you're you're planning to implement these things and why you're doing it or why you feel the need. And if you do, if you earnestly do feel the need for these requirements. And you just don't understand why employees adopt, understand that this negotiation, this this aspect of ambiguity and confusion is intended in order to make sure that at the end, people want to accept whatever feels like a deal. But I think that brings our conversation to an end. These mandate games that are going on, well... That's been part of a much longer cycle, and and one of the reasons that uh, the show's been on a bit of a hiatus. So, you know, I think it's good to get back to this discussion and uh, not have something super, super deep or super fact heavy, uh, extremely, you know, detailed. It's 
It's just a discussion we need to have. And if you'd enjoy it, uh, if you'd enjoy more conversations like that, if you have more to say on it, if you have a perspective on this uh, arena or think that there's other things at play in this this mandate negotiation that's going on, please contact me. Let me know. Contact at conspiracytheoryology.com. You can find me on some of the socials. Uh, make sure you check out the, um, the website www.conspiracytheoryology.com. Some of the main socials, I'm really not going to be on much anymore. I spend a lot of my time on mines, uh, and um, I'm going to do a bit more activity on float at the time being, but that can always change. Right now, we're in <laughs> a, a war of social media, uh, and you know, you can find me on Twitter, but I'm not tremendously active. But don't let that stop you from contacting me. Uh, don't look for me on Facebook uh, because, well, I'm just not going to be there because it's Facebook. Uh, but that was a decision, you know. Um, <laughs> for those of you that may have, you know, longtime listeners that, that used to tr- visit the Facebook page, uh, I honestly don't even know if it's still there and I'm not worried about it. Uh, no, we're going to, as I develop more, as we get back into the groove of, getting the show going. I would love to hear your input, new topics. What do you want to discuss? There's so much going on, um, that, uh, that we need to address, you know, that are fun for topics and that we need to make sure we're thinking are these different approaches that as theriologists, we, we look at it from perhaps a different direction than the main argument. Um, and, and, really look into maybe the underlying um, behaviors and thought process that's really guiding our reactions to to so many of these issues as well we're going to keep having fun with you know the the paranormal and the supernatural because gosh that's absolutely the you know the best part we just need the world to stop burning so that we can go back to enjoying uh the uh, you know the conspiracy theory realm that we've enjoyed so much. Uh, it's hard to sit down and just spend all our time uh, revisiting though the past. While uh, honestly, there's so much unfolding right now that is crazier and more conspiratorial than anything we've you know found in the past. Uh, it's really an interesting time. But with that. Uh, we'll uh, we'll leave it there. Um, I I won't even go through the, the my normal exit spiel. Other than I really uh, appreciate those of y'all that uh, joined and, and uh, joined me for this discussion. And if you're still here, hey, make sure you check out the web page. Email me. Contact me on socials. Let me know what you think. Uh, let's let's keep the discussion going. You know. But most of all, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology. All right. Take care, y'all.